myself a passing grade for how I'm doing. <laughs> that might be the best way. I pass for a living person right now who's marginally functional. Passing. It is, you know, that point in the semester where I just, like, want teaching to be over. So I, I find the semester, you know, it's like when I teach and I, I uh, don't give students uh, a review sheet or uh, I test them in, in a sort of traditional way and feel like, oh, my gosh, I should be more generous and give them a review sheet or make it open book, open note, and then they get the exact same grade, right? I... I'm only teaching one class and I feel as crappy as if I were teaching two classes. So yeah. it's sort of like the same thing. I've got two and we have less than a month left in the semester and Thanksgiving is what is I, I, the way I've been putting it is Thanksgiving is tomorrow and Christmas is basically Monday. That's how I feel oh, wow. <laughs> with, with time at the moment and that there is so much to get done and so little time to do it all. Uh, so yeah, that's where I'm, I'm at. Look, looking forward to thanksgiving um i'll have Traveling? my no everyone's no. coming to me which when you say everyone who's everyone this time uh usually we go your way we go to indiana for thanksgiving so my indiana family a few exceptions not like absolutely everyone but my um my my parents and my sister and my nephews are all coming down and jagger is coming home so nice and, well tell your parents i said hi because i have actually met them and we'll do that. Because they might remember me. And they do. They talk about you often. They do know you. Oh, that's a lie. That's bullshit. It's not a lie. I mean, it's not like they're like, you know. Oh, Tara. Care of that. But they do ask about you because they do know that we're, we're friends and we, we talk frequently. That's really it's, uh, it's, it's not that, it's not, uh, it's not common that my parents know all my colleagues. So. That is true. That is true. Anyway, tell them I. <laughs> How, where's our segue here? today's guest honestly i don't know except um like so he's a new grad student at northwestern university james gibb is our guest today and for somebody who is like in their first year of a phd program he's insanely productive Wait, he's in his first year of a phd program yeah he just moved from toronto he was he was working with um eric shattuck for a little while and that's one of the papers that we're going to be talking with uh talking to him about but yeah, he just started Northwestern this year. So like wait, was Eric at was Eric is at San Antonio? Eric was at Toronto for a little while, hanging out with Dave Sampson and doing research up there. Oh, just not an yeah, official appointment. He's at San Antonio now. And I know um, he was at IU. I think they were both at IU at one point, Dave and, and Eric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, anyway, and you know he's but. For someone who has just started a PhD program, like he's embedded in this field and he's very, very productive and he's now in the waiting room. So I'm going to do the whole little like intro spiel of who James yeah. is. Uh, so James Gibb is a human population biologist and evolutionary anthropologist whose research investigates how socioeconomic, political, emotional factors shape variation in development, physiological function and health among sexual and gender minority people and the evolutionary, ecological, and biocultural processes shaping global patterns of human sexual and gender diversity. And he is currently a graduate student at Northwestern University, and he can tell us how all that's going as we're still in a pandemic, and I know he's taking classes. Uh, and so we're super appreciative of the time he's giving us today. 
Good, good. I'm good. I'm not familiar with this platform before, so it's set for, I was like, I was like, oh my god, there's no Zoom link. I was like, oh. then I was like, I never use Google Chrome, so I'm like, oh, how are yeah. you guys doing? We're we're connecting uh, to any more Zoom meetings by just simply switching platforms. That's that's how we're doing that. And we're yeah. still new to this platform too, so don't worry. Uh, okay. Yeah. Like my comfort level is maybe fairly above yours at this point. <laughs> Yeah, it's cool though. I mean, it's I'm like glad that there's no th like we don't have to download a new app or anything. It's just through Google, which is nice. It's a change of scenery. Yeah. 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 And we've like had weird things like they don't want me using my headphones and my microphone, and so I feel naked. Yeah. yeah, she's got big giant clunky rapper uh, earphones. She's got like Dr. Dre beats or something. It's like a football coach headset because it's got yeah. that comes out. I can't wait I feel to like that throw does. them down. It makes me authoritative. Like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. I feel like having clunky headphones is all part of, like, the podcast game. Like, how else are you supposed to, like, showcase that you are a podcaster? It was 25 bucks. And so, it's like, it's well worth the investment. And it's provided me a weird amount of emotional comfort. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, as I as I interrupted when Chris said it, welcome to the Sausage Science, James. I'm really excited to have you on. I think I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. So we we're, we're, were just discussing how impressed we with you. Because uh, uh, I, I didn't realize you were a new grad student, it sounds like, at, at Northwestern. So just start, before we jump into that, let's just, you know, we back out to the of the earth and tell us, uh, as we do with everybody, what got you interested in anthropology in general? And then, you know, what got you to this point? And we'll ooh and ah over your two publications as a new grad student. Sure. Um, yeah, for sure. I, uh, I, so I'm originally from, I'm Canadian. Um, I'm originally from like Northern Ontario, uh, Timmins in particular. And uh, yeah, my dad, I'm like, like very like settler Canadian. Like my dad's a fur trapper. My mom's French Canadian. Like we grew up in like very rural kind of blue collar family. I'm from Timmins, which is the same place as Shania Twain. I just have to mention that. It's how people anchor me. <laughs> and kind of like, I have a, like, I also grew up on like a, about 80 acres of family property where my aunts and uncles were my neighbors. So a lot of people think I grew up on like this family commune or like essentially, but like I was always really interested in, and I also have like a lot of my dad's friends we would call aunts and uncles. So I was always really interested in how people were related to each other. Um, like, you know, like, oh, because my, we'd go out for like a walk around a property and like my aunts and my mom would be like, oh, that's your cousin or like that's your third cousin and stuff like that. So like definitely like, became kind of fascinated like with just relationships kinship at a very young age but i originally i wanted to be a singing paleontologist when i was a kid but then i hit puberty <laughs> i can't sing uh and it transformed into like zoology then genetics and then in grade like 10 i uh wanted to i found anthropology because uh like a high school teacher was like you could be a spy if you could get a social science degree i was like i want to be a spy so i went to like the local library i know i know weird <laughs> No, oh. no, we, we, we just have to pause and appreciate. <laughs> Wait, let's pause and appreciate you, singing paleontologist. And you blew yeah. past it. You blew, <laughs> you blew past that. I want you to describe to me how you envision that career. Like, I want to know what that looked like in your head as a kid. Uh, I guess, like, I don't know, like, very, like, Spice Girls, Backstreet Boys. Like, I would be, like, the Dino Spice girl, you know? My whole theme is, like, paleontology, dinosaurs, <laughs> science, you know? They never had, a, a like, a science spice. Um, they always said scary. They had posh. But that's kind of, like, the angle I was thinking of as a kid, I think. <laughs> 
but it didn't work out. <laughs> I, I don't. I think it is not too late. There's definitely a, um, a TikTok uh, uh, niche for you. Uh, maybe. I mean, I could. I you know, there's auto tunes. <laughs> like partly, I'm not sure how much of this is like science communication and disseminating your results through song, or like you're in the field digging, and then all of a sudden <laughs> break out into a performance, like both. Honestly, I, I would go to that musical. I would go to that performance. <laughs> you know, it's like, it could be like, uh, I'd be actually a really, they should make a musical about a paleontologist. I think that would be a Broadway hit. <laughs> yeah. If you think about alloparental care, I, there was a lot of care that was invested yeah. into me and my siblings. My younger siblings are triplets. Um, we're all IVF. Yeah. I thought, I, I, yeah, yeah. We're all like all designer baby. Well, not designer baby. I just say that because I think it's funny. But uh, <laughs> we were all conceived oh. in vitro. I was like, I've always felt like they stole my spotlight because I was a singlet born in the 90s. And it was really hard to get like a singlet from IVF or like in vitro, you know. And then the triplets were born. And everyone's like, oh, my God, triplets. I was like, well, actually, they're the normal ones. <laughs> like, that's the norm. It's I'm special. Like, hey. It's true. For, for personal reasons. Again, that's that's super fascinating. Oh, my God. We're going to have so many words here and not talk <laughs> about said, your we'll research at all. Take us forward. <laughs> yeah. Today. <laughs> so grade 10, I was like, my, I had a history teacher t mention like anthropology in passing about how like, oh, you could work for like CSIS, which is like the Canadian like, uh, like intelligence agency. So like be a spy. And I mean, obviously, I don't actually think that's very practical. But I went to the library and like I took like, an anthropology textbook out. And so that's how I kind of started learning about anthropology. Um, and then like in grade uh, 11 and 10, we had like um, social science courses we could take. And I was, I took, I kind of got like invested in taking the anthropology classes at my school. And um, I started like reading ethnographies in high school and like I read Diane Fozzi's field notes, which I really, and I like, but then um, I think in my undergrad, I went to, for anthro at the university, I got a BA in anthropology at the University of Waterloo. Um, that's when I actually read like Goodman and Leatherman's Building a New Biocultural Synthesis, which kind of put me on the trajectory of wanting to be a human biologist. After that, you know, I got some really good training, uh, really good foundational training at UW. Um, and then I went to do my master's of science in evolutionary anthropology at the University of Toronto. And my research there was kind of, that's where that kind of the bone health paper came out of during that time there. Then uh, after that, I got like, a, I had a, during the COVID time, I had like a, a brief kind of one year uh, visiting research fellowship program uh, situation in the uh, Health and Society Department, where I got trained by uh, Jessica Fields, who's a sociologist in kind of more LGBT health focus work which was really great. Here I am at Northwestern, <laughs> and I'm working with Tom McDade, and uh, yeah, I'm getting my PhD in biological anthropology. I'm really excited. You know, I'm a first-gen student, so, and I also have a learning disability, so it's definitely been like a long progress, but I'm really happy to be here. You're settling in, because this is your first semester to a PhD program, and I'm guessing three-ish classes? So yeah. How's the transition going for you? Um, I think I benefited from the fact that I like I, I did a master's. Uh, definitely, like it's not like, a, and it's. But I think it's what's interesting is that it's a quarter system here, and I've never done that before, so it's going by really fast. Like I think we have two week left of classes, and I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that followed by a couple like weeks of presentation, but it's going by quite rapidly. Um, but I'm I really like it here. I'm really excited to be here. Northwestern was definitely like kind of like a dream school to go to and I never thought I'd be going here and as an undergrad I definitely knew about it but whereas like a lot of my mentors at U of T were people outside of anthropology so I was trained like by epidemiologists sociologists and then a, there are a couple of anthropologists but nobody really ever has done uh, human biology in the degree that they do in the U.S. 
in Canada. So I feel like there's a lot of support for my work here, and I feel like it was a really good fit for me here, just in terms of like the vibe, I guess, <laughs> that makes sense. Oh, we, we know Northwestern well. We know definitely see the vibe that you're talking about and think that you are in great hands out and um one of them with eric but you have two papers right i don't know which one came because i listened to them and i didn't look at the date so mm -hmm. come first so uh the bone health paper was probably it was my first first authored like paper on data analysis i think i had like a brief i had a commentary in the ajhb's uh covid social issue before that but this is my first like paper where i'm talking about data where i'm using data which i think is also really important um, which was really important for me in my master's was to figure out how to analyze data and learn how to code particularly so paper uh was the the second paper uh so they're both using enhance um they are which and uh, shout out to like asher rosinger for he wrote uh, and jillian ice they wrote that secondary data analysis paper which i think all grad students need to read in their first year because like that is such good bit knowledge yeah that's actually what i was thinking of when i was when i was listening to papers was i was like huh I wonder, uh, given given your your I don't know your exact age, but I know where you. Were wondering, I was like, I wonder if he was at that session when they did that or, or saw that paper. So no. uh, what are you? Why don't you just me asking about one and then the other? Why don't you just tell us about uh, your process there? Because I'd really like to connect the dots now that you've said that, because we interviewed Asher, you know, two or three years ago and asked him about. It. So tell us about that paper. So I guess for me, one of the biggest limitations just was always like finding ways to be a human biologist who has never collected human biological data and like being able to learn how to analyze that data. And so when Asher's paper, Asher and Jillian's paper came out, uh, I think it was like, what, 2017, 2018, um, it was kind of really, it was like, I felt like such like a grand groundbreaking moment for me because they kind of listed all those data sets of, and how to do a secondary data analysis. And I, that for, I think that's such a valuable skill to have as a researcher because it gives you a lot of flexibility and capacity to work, uh, especially when you're not able to go to the field. Um, like I, and, you know, I've never done a field school. They, uh, they're really expensive. And, and in, in human biology, that's not that common for them, right? And so that was just like really kind of augmented my capacity to kind of be productive and be and learn some really good skills in terms of data analysis. And like shout out to Eric because he definitely led the data analysis part of that paper, uh, of the bone health paper. Um, and it, it, that kind of gave me some kind of a scaffold to kind of start learning how to code in R, which is also one of the big things I wanted to learn from my masters was how to do that coding work. So yeah. And then, ah, then that food security paper came after that. But I originally start went to UFT to do research on like food security in the north, um, and then I switched to LGBT health research later. Uh, but yeah, it kind of food security is a really important topic for me, just because as a northerner, we have really high rates of food insecurity. There's like definitely. I remember moving to Toronto and like just like the quality of food and how long it lasted in your fridge was completely different <laughs> between like living in Toronto versus living in like Timmins or North Bay. Like there's definitely like it's, it takes longer to ship it up there, so their expiration dates closer. <laughs> um, you know, for perishable foods, and then like I mean, yeah. <laughs> I noticed that in Finland. You know, when I would go shopping, the produce would never last as long as I thought it would. And I'm just like, damn it. <laughs> Why is my right. life molding after two days? Uh, so I absolutely get it. But I guess I'm also curious, too, because, you know, when you have access to NHANES, mm -hmm. you have access to a shit ton of data. 
-hmm. And so how did you decide to, like, how did the question come from with, with bone health and looking at the LGBT community? Or as, as, as maybe we should also define that, because I've never heard the term uh, sexual or gender minority before kind of used in a human biology paper. Uh, mm -hmm. So how did you narrow that down and be like, right, this is the question I want to ask and then dig into it? This was also during my master's when I was kind of making the shift to focus more on LGBTQ health or sexual and gender minority health. It's like just kind of looking at how those processes that we look, that anthropologists have been really, biological anthropologists in particular, have been really good at in terms of um, articulating how structural inequities and interpersonal discrimination comes to impact uh, marginalized, in particular racialized margin people's health outcomes how that might like how those similar pathways might then affect queer people uh who experience significant who also experience significant kind of structural and interpersonal kind of discrimination and inequalities in terms of resource access that that kind of informed my work broadly um it's like how can i learn these how do, can i take these skills that i've learned from biological anthropologists in terms of articulating racial health disparities or racialized people's health health and apply it to understand LGBT people's health because, and part of that too was also looking at like the literature on chronic non-communal diseases in LGBT people, which the, at the, when I started grad school, there wasn't so much of that body of work, but it's starting to articulate a little bit more. And also thinking about how there are a variety of risk factors that queer people kind of um, just in terms of like lifestyle factors, I don't like using that term lifestyle, but like, so like just alcohol consumption, so tobacco rates are relatively high in terms of, uh, in, in the LGBT community relative to heterosexual peers. So I was at a presentation at, at the Canadian Association for Physical Anthropologists, CAPA, which is like the APA, a, ABBA's, um, or the ABA's uh, kind of comp, uh, sister in Canada. <laughs> um, and one of my colleagues, Eric, Amy Berenstein, was talking about uh, alcohol consumption and bone health in a South African population context. And so I was thinking, like, how would this affect, like, gay men's bone health, right? No, I, like, I, because this is also from my own lived experience of, like, you know, one of the only places I've ever really hung out with other queer people other than is, like, you go to the bars, like, the, you know, so there's a really, there's a, there's definitely a drinking culture. Um, there's definitely, like, you know, that's our safe space, but also there's this element that, like, you know, you know, it's also like kind of a, a coping mechanism to deal with some of that structural inequity and kind of interpersonal mis uh, interpersonal discrimination that kind of results in people having these elevated rates of substance use sometimes or alcohol consumption, tobacco use. I don't know if that's making sense. So bone, but also what's really interesting is that alcohol actually has a pretty negative impact on bone health. Uh, it kind of it's a not necessary. It's a nutrient that doesn't necessarily do good for the bone. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, let's look at that. But what was really interesting about our paper, Eric and I's paper, was that we actually found that depression was actually more important for bone health uh, in terms of just correlating with lower bone mass in gay men, bisexual men, than actually alcohol was, which actually is really interesting and actually makes a lot of sense when you look at the literature on like postmenopausal women, where depression has become this big risk factor for osteoporosis later in life. And I'm like, okay, and I think of depression as like a really good indicator of, of uh, you know, stress response physiology being dysregulated because it tends to be uh, correlate well, like with higher levels of cortisol in the body. And so cortisol, and then one of the pathways we suggested in that paper was that how cortisol, like chronic stress, being chronically stressed, is not good for your bone health, but because queer people are chronically stressed because they are always kind of unsure of their interpersonal relationships, you know, whether people are going to, that could um, over time either A, have a lower bone mineral density when they attain peak bone mass, and then also over time, because they're chronically depressed, that would uh, erode some of that bone health 
even though bone is a very dynamic tissue, I also think it's a great tissue to look at that kind of interplay between society and biology. Just to back up a little bit and, and sort of clarify, so in the, the data set, um, how is bone health being measured? Sure. Um, so they're using DEXA. And then there, there are specific, if I remember correctly, like femoral neck measures and things of this sort. So let me just really quickly summarize what I remember. And, and you've said a little bit of this. So sex, men sex, who report a sexual minority, who, you, who classified as sexual minorities, uh, showed poorer bone health. You didn't find the effect in, in lesbian, right? And nope. you also found some counterintuitive things, alcohol and marijuana. But I'm I'm... And I want to come back to those, but I'm really curious about like specific bones that get measured because I'm just sitting here thinking like, on the one hand, what an odd thing to focus on, right? The, the but on the other hand, it's like mm-hmm. it's like a, a piece of bone that like holds our whole body weight all the time. Like every time we walk, on one femoral neck at a time, right? So right. on the one hand, it's a, it's a point of intense stress, but I'm just curious as to like, I don't I don't know all that well. So why choose to focus on that specific measure? NHANES has data available for like the proximal femur, so that's femoral neck, trochanter, and intertrochanter, so that's like the head of the femur, right? And then also the spine. I'm not sure which vertebrae they are, um, but they, basically they ch- selected those sites because that's where the majority of osteoporotic fractures happen, right? So when you have an osteoporotic break, it usually happens either at the, in the spinal region or at like the hip. Um, like, you know, we, if you, I, I had a, one of my grandmothers, you know, broke her hip once. So like, you know, like that's where that, that fracture will happen and because of the, the biomechanics of it, like the way okay. you're loading the bones. Um, so that's why we selected the, that, well, that's why those sele- sites were selected by Ed Haynes. Um, okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. What, what was the age span, right? So you're talking about mm-hmm. people who have had significant life experiences, I'm guessing? You're looking at a developmental impact? Our median age was 37, and our mean age was 38. So we had people from who are 20 to 49. We restricted it to people who were uh, under 50 because we didn't want to... We wanted to uh, basically exclude individuals who might be osteoporotic um, or who had gone through... Basically, anybody who was premenopausal, or uh, at least for the woman. Uh, so that was the age span. It was just kind of to look at... And it, there definitely was... I would really wish it was a longitudinal data set so I could look more at the developmental focus. But I, one of the re- goals of my research program is to really try to frame LGBT health from a life course perspective. Right. So that's kind of what we try to do in the discussion a little bit more. But yeah, trying to look at how... If there were differences across various age groups. Or age... Like, with a, a diverse kind of age... age uh, population of ages, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that um, just because what you're saying with regard to depression and stuff almost makes it, it, it sounds like there's more developmental stress and depression growing up this way than with the downstream risks that depression sets you up for, which is the drug and alcohol use that you were, mm-hmm. you were looking for correlations with. So mm-hmm. it was almost like you found more correlation with the direct stressor that's causing the problems than the indirect. Is that, am I reading Absolutely. That Absolutely. And actually, I think that's, um, yeah, no, absolutely. So we thought, we thought it would be the alcohol and the tobacco use that might have been the effects or the drug and drug use that might have affected bone health negatively. But in fact, we actually found a stronger relationship with the depression, which I think, um, A, makes a lot of sense when you look at the literature, but also uh, kind of just kind of speaks to why we need to address depression, especially in LGBT youth, um, to try ensure that they have like the best shot at having a healthy long lives with strong bones, you know? And so to... You, you said the bits and pieces of, of the big conclusion of this paper, and so I mm-hmm. want to make sure we explicitly put it out there. And so kind of the big findings were depression was the major factor impacting bone health, and that it's more present among men than women. 
Yeah. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit why you see that more among men than women. And then, like you just said, mm -hmm. what we can do to address the disparity, kind of mm -hmm. where you kind of hope this gets you. Mm -hmm. um, for sure. So, um, yeah, basically we found that depression correlated significantly with bone mineral, lower bone mineral density and bone mineral content among sexual minority men. Uh, but we did not see, see that same finding in women. And that's actually a really interesting kind of like more... Uh, research conundrum I'm still thinking about is how does that how did that come about because you know it's because we actually found better bone health measures among sexual minority women relative to heterosexual women um, and so one of the things I'm wondering is like are there kind of factors that are occurring in during the life course uh, that are unique to kind of being a sexual minority woman that could actually we could lo look at and then use to um, ins to protect uh, heterosexual women's bone health throughout the as they age you know um, and so what, part of that would be looking at like uh, postmenopausal women to see if they actually if there is a protective effect in terms or if we do see better bone health indicators of bone health later in life among sexual minority women as well as just like looking at kind of potentially what are those kind of like things that correlate with that bone health and I've been doing some of those analysis but I haven't really found like a lot of this I, I don't I'm not sure yet um <laughs> I'm and I don't want to fall into like stereotypes thinking like maybe it has to do with physical activity during adolescence um you know maybe uh yeah, so I yeah that's kind of where I'm, I'm, that's one of the kind of thing, questions that emerged out of this research. But yeah. How dare you not immediately know this extremely complicated, multifaceted, multivariate issue <laughs> and have an answer for us, James. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting thing. And, and that is a tight line to walk to make sure that you aren't falling into a stereotypical trap of like, well, clearly, you know, women within the sexual gender minority are going to be lifting weights more and therefore protect their bones. And so being conscientious of that is absolutely wonderful. And I can't wait to see. Are you planning on taking, like, moving this forward or? Yeah, um, I definitely, I've, like, I've started the analysis. And I, I just haven't, I've, I've been so busy with grad school. I haven't, I have, like, a couple of papers on the background right now. I just, like, need to finish writing them and have them submitted. And then they'll, like, be off my plate for, like, maybe two months. And then I'll have to get review comments. And, like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, basically, we are kind of we are going to starting to do that analysis, looking at like different age cohorts to see if they're like how does these trends affect older adults. Um, one of the the things about NHANES though is that they don't necessarily ask older participants their sexuality data on their sexuality, so that kind of truncates it or like impacts like our ability to do that analysis. Um, uh, but I'm also thinking about maybe going to one of the research data centers to try to get access to the um, the like. Pre eighteen year olds to look at their bone health because I think that would also be really interesting, um, and just have a broader kind of age, different uh, age uh, cohort or look at age more broadly. So I have a, a couple questions. One which you you allude to, uh, mm -hmm. you had to kind of retro code uh, sexual and gender minority, right? Because they ask, and you make this point, they ask gender, but they don't they don't actually give people the opportunity to represent. Uh, non-binary gender. So, so one, my question, how you how you did that coding, and what were your, you know, limitations in that regard? But the other thing I just want to put a pin in and, and make sure we come back to is, I had your papers in reverse order in my in my mind. So it sounds like in one paper you found findings corresponding with an impact more on men, but I think your other paper you found uh, insecurity higher in in women in lesbian women, right? So I would I would have 
we would have expected there to be some match between food insecurity and bone bone loss, right? So I'll 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 talk about the coding uh, question. Because <laughs> that, that 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 affects that. That's actually that applies to both papers um, in terms of just. So uh, Anne Haynes does. So Anne Haynes does. When they ask, they ask gender, and that actually is just code for sex because they ask the only options you have are male or female, right? And so that's like a sex assigned at birth. Um, they don't actually have any room for actual gender di- to actually look at gender diversity in that sample. So that's one of the limitations of these of this research area. Uh, well, of my research. Um, secondly, but in terms of sexual behavior, they have actually gotten a little bit better. Um, they do have. They ask about sexual identity as well as sexual behavior, which is uh, and sexual orientation is tends to be. Uh, usually constructed, it's a construct of about three three different factors. One is sexual identity, one is sexual behavior, the other is sexual like who you're attracted to, so sexual attraction. And usually it's a composite of those three variables. Um, so we don't necessarily have attraction, but we have behavior and identity, which is good um, in terms. And then, so I make a composite score of that. So whether, and usually I all, and I always prioritize identity for, before behavior. So if someone identifies as gay or lesbian, they, regardless of their sexual behavior, I will code them as gay or lesbian. If they identify as bisexual, I code them as bisexual, regardless of the sexual behavior. And then if they identify as straight but have part, uh, engaged in same-sex sexual behavior, then I will code them as like um, same-sex experienced. And then I uh, then I also in my bone, in the food security paper, I also had a category for pe- for people who said unsure, but also parties who engaged in same-sex or same-gender sexual behavior. Um, across the, uh, over their lifetime, uh, and so that was like a fifth category that I added to the food security paper, um, and that's usually how I go about it. Uh, and then I'll sign uh, uh, stratify it by uh, by gender, sex, gender, um, and sexual orientation to look at that because I think there's especially for the foods well for both these papers there's really interesting kind of gendered elements to it, right? Um, and that's why we elected to use gender in the ter- in the uh, food security paper because we know that food security tends to be a very there's a lot of gender particular gendered experiences with it and it is really interesting that we found fa- uh, we found kind of like this conundrum between like inverse kind of associations right um between where we found in one in one paper we found like elevated oh go ahead Kara. for a moment uh, like the same thing with coding for gender could you let our listeners know of like for food security and insecurity kind of what's that range and gradation how, how do you mm-hmm. define somebody as being food so uh, we, Enhines uses the USDA's kind of food security, uh, or yeah, I think it's USDA, United States Department of Agriculture's food security survey questionnaire defined by the USDA as a disruption in food intake or eating has patterns because of lack of economic and other resources. And so in 2019, the USDA submitted that roughly 30, uh, 35.2 million Americans lived in food insecure households and 9 million adults reside in households that are like, experiencing severe food insecurity. And so I, I, I also tend to define it using like the World Food Summit 1996 definition which defi- definition which is also something people see a lot which is food security exists when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient safe and nutritious foods that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life i usually like to add in like a kind of a that like a a, a couple other kind of adjective um, adverbs or adjectives sorry uh i'd say like uh, secure access to safe, sustainable, sufficient, and culturally appropriate and acceptable food is essential to the maintenance of individual and community health and well-being. That's another definition I offered in the paper. But like ensuring that there's culturally appropriate foods, I think, is really important, especially when we see, uh, like, like in, coming from a northern context, indigenous people in Canada, country foods are really important for ensuring food security. There. Sorry. Anyway, so in terms of just the great categories of food security that we looked at, we chose to we use the kind of the four categories often used by. The USDA 
or like that you can score from that instrument. So there's secure, which is basically there's no interruption in terms of they don't really experience a lot of interruption in terms of food intake. It's marginal, moderate, and severe. Food security is no affirmative response of any of the 10 items, and that's instrument marginal. Food, food insecure with one to two affirmative responses, moderately is with three to five affirmative responses, and severely is with six to 10 affirmative responses to that instrument used by the USDA. And so like that just is like a kind of a gradient to look at different, like the severity of food insecurity. And so what we did find in this paper was actually, it wasn't lesbians, it was actually bisexual women in particular are the most vulnerable to being food insecure, both at the household and at the adult level. Um, and this actually, uh, when we're looking at the kind of broader literature on terms of bisexuality and health, this is very consistent is that we, because of biphobia or, you know, bisexual people tend to be, have some of the worst health outcomes relative to their, their, both their heterosexual and non-heterosexual peers. Um, and that's because they experience kind of stigma from both their heterosexual and non-heterosexual peers. And I think one of the, this is really important, because, like especially this kind of work where we're trying to get at how the interpersonal becomes structural in terms of inequities. Uh, because, you know, ha experiencing that kind of stigma and discrimination can result in potentially like not getting, not having access to um, a job that might give you economic resources to afford food or live in a region where you have access to like grocery stores, right? And so there's definitely like, uh, one of the goals of my, other goals of my research is trying to try to trace how that interpersonal discrimination transforms into structural inequities and trace those pathways. Um, and then how does that affect like biological systems? So that's more so with the bone health paper. So what I would, what I, if I could, uh, reword what, what you said or, or, or your answer, it sounds like uh, on the one hand, we could hypothesize that uh, food insecurity is directly related to uh, poor bone health. But what the data seem to suggest and what can further be tested is that discrimination differentially affects or stigma affects both food insecurity in one population and poor bone health in another, and they're not, like poor bone health and food insecurity in this case aren't directly related, but they are both related to the stigmatization of being a sexual minority. Is that what you think is going on? For sure. Um, I would say like, I, I would say that like, um, I guess the the kind of the other, one of the things we're working on now is looking at how food insecurity affects depression, prevalence of depression among sexual minorities, right? And I, we know that, and I think there's been some really great work by Craig Hadley and Crystal Patel looking at like depression and anxiety and its relationship to food security in um, a number of population, populations. So, and that's kind of, you know, one of the things too that, yeah, that we're, we're trying to see is like, how does food, being food insecure and having, or like just having, less resource access to vital resources affect people's mental health and then in turn how does that affect that chronic stress which is then represented by that like elevated depression come to affect the various biological systems if that makes sense it does then as we kind of start wrapping things up a little bit you have all this awesome work that you've already done with a few papers and on the back burner uh you are in your first year of a phd program taking classes on the quarter system which i can only imagine is like crunched to the max so kind of what's next do you do you have an idea of what you want your dissertation project to be i'm really interested in like looking at um healthy aging among the lgbt community but particularly like biological aging taking more of an epigenetics approach but um that's kind of the ideas of it right now <laughs> we'll see how that turns out but um yeah 
Uh, and there are a couple of longitudinal cohorts that I'm hoping to work with for my dissertation. But my biggest issue is kind of focusing. <laughs> I have ADHD. Um, it's like, you know, I, have so, I think of so many questions all the time, and it's like uh, just, you know, picking one to focus on and just doing it well is really important, especially for a dissertation. And that's kind of what I, I want to do. But yeah, but, but broadly, my goal for my research program is to ensure that, like, is to help support, like, all people of our society, regardless of their sexual orientation, so that they can, like, in terms of aging and living healthy, long lives. Um, that makes sense. For sure. So, so how can people, I know you're active on Twitter. Uh, how can people find out about you, one? And two, um, we want to come back to the singing paleontologist and find out what you do for fun and how you stay, uh, keep your, your voice fit. Like, what are you doing for fun, listening to, watching? And Twitter, so I think my Twitter is James K. Gibb. Um, I think that might just be it. Uh, on, and then, yeah, Twitter is pretty. It's my more is my professional social media page. Um, I am I'm a millennial, so lots of different alt accounts. But um, yeah, that there. Uh, I Northwestern. I have a profile in Northwestern, and then uh, my research gate is also definitely where I'll that you can uh, request access to papers if they're not publicly available. And then in terms of fun, gosh. Uh, I keep saying gosh, ever since I moved to the Midwest, I can't stop saying gosh. And so in terms of just fun, go to the gym. I'm pretty boring. Um, I used to paint. I actually can't sing. But ever since puberty, that really kind of truncated my, my my dreams of being a singing paleontologist. So uh, I'm not very good at singing. I was in choir. I'm pretty sure I'm tone deaf now, actually. Um, yeah. One time. I remember one time I was at high school, and we were, like, doing, like, I, was, I joined some friends that they were all I went to an art school because I was I was a painter but they were all like a lot of my friends were performers and they coerced me into coming to choir practice or like choir practice with them and the music teacher was like who's singing off like I, they're not really I'm like oh my god it was me and I was like so embarrassed I was like oh <laughs> but yeah <laughs> um so that really crushed my my aspirations to be a performer but uh yeah I I paint um I go to the gym I'm also like a huge nerd and like the pandemic, me and my best friend, we played like Magic the Gathering the entire time. So, uh, yeah. You don't whisper that like you're ashamed. Like, that's a great thing. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. But it's like, I don't think a lot of people like, no, like would imagine me playing like a, like a trading card game. <laughs> like, yeah. So that's, that's that. <laughs> and like outdoors. Um, I really miss my cat and my dog. They're Aww. back in Canada. It's been hard. With you? Yeah. No, I was like, I was like, I felt I was worried I'd be too busy. And my cat in particular has separation anxiety. So he would not, he's best better with my parents. Mm. Well, James, this has been an absolute delight. And we are now going to create an entire new field of singing scientists. I know. We have a whole new uh, stuff, things to riff on and, and, a, and a bar to hold other people to. We're going to be like, so, singing paleontologist was our last guest. What was your dream as a child? <laughs> Also a spy. He wanted to be a spy after that. Yeah. Why he goes into anthropology? Yeah. I don't see a singing spy going over well. You can't be. No. You can't be sneaky. You can't be sneaky when you're trying to sing. You want too much attention. There are limits to this now. Well, the mass singer. Anyway, I think just <laughs> having you on again in a couple of years once you have you know that this all lined up and ready to go uh, because it's going to be really fun to watch your career as it explodes even more than it already has and it's in the best of ways so thank you so much for for taking the time out of your busy quarter schedule yeah to, uh, to chat with us today it's been a pleasure thank you for having me it's been a pleasure i love the podcast thank you so much take care